Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. What's going on, guys? So today we're going to do a narrative watch where uh, I dive a little deeper on a full topic kind of end to end. And this came out of seeing um, a bunch of different pieces of news around tokenization, which is uh, I feel like something that we maybe haven't talked about as much recently. Um, it was pretty clear that it's out of vogue, right? Uh, this is a time for maximalism and for, <coughs> excuse me, a return to fundamentals in some ways. And so uh, it's interesting to see um, a number of pieces of news from Shapeshift, uh, the exchange, from Block TV, the media company based out of Israel, and from Satoshi's Treasure that somehow relate to tokenization in some way. So uh, what I wanted to talk about is kind of do almost like a linear uh, history of the the once uh, and potential promise of tokenization, the problems of tokenization, and then I'll spend a little bit of time on these uh, this set of news stories that are the, kind of the latest in tokenization. Um, so let's start with the promise, right? So this is something that I think we forget often uh, because of everything that transpired and because of the ICO boom and because of how crazy it was. But there was an idea behind tokenization that was more than just um, kind of this rampant fundraising mechanism, right? And so loosely put and or simply put I guess and this is um, cribbing a little bit from this piece uh, why decentralization matters by Chris Dixon which I think is probably the most uh, thorough uh, topic or writing on the matter um, aside from maybe this piece by Sherston Erickson the future of network effects tokenization and the end of extraction but basically what these posts are arguing and what the the, the larger idea was arguing was that uh, effectively tokenization represented a transformation of power in networks uh, and networks being that the businesses, the companies, the organizations, the political structures all around us, right? It wasn't uh, one type of network. It was all networks. And um, the issue was if you, specifically, if you look at uh, the, the, the FANG companies, right? The web 2.0 companies, which were supposed to be these liberating forces that allowed people to create, not just consume. Uh, what happened in fact, is that they created network effects that created incredible user lock-in, right? It became enormously expensive, either literally or uh, in terms of just uh, switching costs for people to actually leave networks. Um, so that could be Facebook because all of your friends are there and you don't want to miss out on what's going on. It can be a, a literal switching cost in some cases. Uh, and so effectively, all of these networks started um, with aligned incentives to their users, which is they wanted to grow, right? Inside of a network, the more, the, the whole point of a network effect is that the more people who participate in that network, uh, the more value it has to each of those participants. And so at the beginning of the life cycle of a network, everyone involved, both the users and the owner of the network, just want to grow the network in pure terms. They want to grow as many people as they can because it creates more value for everyone. However, at some point, uh, you get to a, 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 a platform where there's no longer any ability for uh, platforms to grow or they, they can't grow in the same way that they used to in terms of numbers of pure users. So they have to extract more from each of the users they have, right? So you can see this graph uh, from Chris Dixon's chart. Uh, for those of you who are listening, it shows kind of the uh, growth over time in a platform's relationship to users. And over time, it moves from uh, attract to extract. Um, and showing again that at the beginning, all it wants to do is attract new users. Uh, by the end of its life cycle or medium in its life cycle, it just has to extract more from those users it already has. We see this all the time when uh, Amazon Prime gets more expensive, when uh, companies 
change their data policies to be more onerous and have more control, right? Uh, you see it in terms of uh, relationships to the businesses that get built on top of networks, where at the beginning they cooperate and eventually they compete. I think probably the best example of this is Amazon, who is systematically crowding out the independent resellers or an independent third-party uh, sellers that helped build its business, um, and, and even crowding out now uh, and pushing out traditional companies by building their own Amazon uh, owned brands, right? Using the data they have. So uh, anyways, this is the, what's undeniable is that this is a phenomenon of networks and that the businesses that surround us and drive our lives are network businesses. Now, the idea of tokenization was on some level to uh, obliterate the distinction between network owners and network users. If there if there wasn't a separate uh, exogenous class of owners that were separate from the users, you wouldn't have the the same incentive to extract more from those from those users because the users are the owners. That's the idea, right? This is the kind of the big pie in the sky vision of uh, what might have been. Now there was a second piece of this uh, idea that wasn't just about uh, a, a grand kind of utopian vision of uh, all the, the network's users were the network's owners, but a mechanism by which to overcome the bootstrap problem of networks. So the bootstrap problem is that at the beginning of a network, when there are fewer uh, people participating in it, it is less valuable to each of those people. So there's less incentive for each new person to come on. And as it grows and it grows and it grows, at some point it hits a critical mass where uh, it, there's more incentives for people to join and less incentives for people to stay away. And that's where we really see kind of huge viral loops. But at the beginning, it can take a really long time to actually get sufficient amount of value inside a network uh, to actually incentivize people to come. The idea or one of the ideas of tokenization was that it would overcome the bootstrap problem by giving, creating this kind of additional separate incentive uh, to to the early users, right? It would be this early financial incentive uh, to actually join, right? So that was, again, the idea uh, on some theoretical level. And there are a lot of people who are really excited about this. You know, there are a lot of uh, projects who did actually in good faith want to go build alternative businesses to the, you know, the, the companies that we see around us and that we still have such problems with. However, uh, there were a lot of problems as well. So let's shift over to the problems of tokenization. Uh, the problems of tokenization are, are incredibly numerous. Uh, and so I just want to kind of breeze through them because I think anyone who's watching this is quite familiar with, with all of this. Um, and basically, it's like what, what was theorized versus what actually happened. And I think in some ways, all of this comes down to the fact that the speculative value and the uh, financial fundraising use case of tokens, the, the disruption that they represented in terms of how easy it was to fundraise from anywhere in the world and from anyone in the world, uh, totally overwhelmed all of these other theoret theoretical use cases and theoretical value propositions, right? Uh, the, the speculative use case was so, they were so tuned for that use case that it just crowded out all the space. But let's expand upon that a little bit. So problems of tokenization. One, uh, they were for lots of projects simply a way to skirt around securities regi uh, regulations, right? Again, going back to the fundraising piece, uh, they seem to kind of exist and operate outside of the existing frameworks, or at least that's what people wanted to be. Um, in point of fact, a lot of these sales and kind of where things seem to be landing is that uh, a token may not in the long run be a security, but when you offer it before a product is launched, uh, 
uh, it certainly seems to be. Now, we don't still have perfect clarity uh, in the US at least around how different securities are, are designated. Um, we continue to use this word utility token, which was basically invented by the industry uh, as a way to say not a security. And that the idea was theoretically that people actually use these things. So they're not just kind of an investment asset, they're a working asset in some ways, and they should be treated as such and differently. The problem is one, we made that up, not regulators made that up. And two, uh, most of these projects, when they actually did their issuance, uh, weren't running. And in fact, the projects that stayed behind and, and tried to actually get things up and running before they issued tokens, uh, a lot of them actually just missed the window of ICOs. But at the same time, they're not potentially uh, being hammered by the SEC in a couple of years. So uh, I'll leave it to you to decide who was better off ultimately. But um, one of the problems is that tokens got so wrapped up in, uh, in the the bad faith efforts in a lot of cases and just the uh, the confusion in other cases around skirting securities regulations. Second, um, tokens almost invariably create friction in a user experience, right? You're effectively asking someone to uh, have a symbol of, uh, of your ability to do something, right? Uh, or alternatively, you're asking them to use your proprietary money for your ecosystem rather than the money that they already have, right? So there's a whole friction uh, uh, that that happens inside almost every type of user experience that introduces a token. In a lot of ways, the, the question for projects is in what circumstances is the friction uh, that is inherent and inevitable with the token actually worth, uh, or the new value worth that, that friction that is uh, inevitable, right? Um, so friction, but, uh, you know, I think that again, going back to the problems, is that when it came to actually using them, again, rather than just speculating on them, uh, there was huge friction. Second, uh, this speculation use case, right? The, as many people as there were who were thoughtful and well-intentioned and reading these Christics and essays and, and thinking about the, the future of networks and the future of business models and what they might be, there were 10x, 20x, 50x, 100x, a Googleplex x, more who uh, just saw that this was a uh, ludicrous, fast-moving, um, insane sort of uh, you know bubble, and they wanted to get in on that, and they wanted to speculate, and they wanted to move quickly, and that ended up being what the story really was for all of these token projects and for the entire uh, ICO boom. It was about speculation. That created its own set of problems. Uh, problem one, incentive alignment or misalignment. Uh, if you're a founder or an early investor of an equity startup, um, your equity is is basically worthless until it's not, which means someone else wants to buy it later at a, at a higher premium. And that's going to take years and years and years in most cases. In fact, if anything, equity is overly burdensome, particularly on early employees who don't get liquidity. You know, they vest after four years, but then it could be five years later and they've moved on to a different company because they had nothing more uh, to do at that, that first tech company and uh, they still don't have any liquidity from that. So any discount to their salary they took uh, has been meaningless. However, the flip side of equity is obviously that when you strike it right, it's enormously powerful, right? When Facebook IPO'd, it made a thousand new millionaires overnight in uh, in in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. So uh, 
the incentives, though, uh, are still aligned in the sense that everyone is building for the long term and there's no quick exit and there's no way for people to get out fast. In fact, if you look at some of the biggest issues that people have with the state of venture capital now, it's things like founders taking too much money off the table in uh, later fundraising rounds, which people are worried creates uh, misaligned incentives. Now, that's a whole different debate that we don't have to get into here. But what's for sure is that part of the challenge of, uh, of tokenization in the context of what are effectively technology startups is that it creates these really warped incentives where when you have day one liquidity uh, and you have big pops because of uh, uh, of kind of listings on exchanges or whatever, you create everyone who you gave, you give an incentive for everyone who got in early to cash out uh, some or all of their tokens, right? And, um, and that is founders, that's early investors. And in fact, by the end of the ICO uh, days, this is what we saw, what people called the shitcoin waterfall, where, you know, uh, early investors would get in with sometimes a 100% discount, right? They would just get free tokens to give social proof to that project so that the next round of investors could get a 50% discount, so that the next set of investors could get a 25% discount, so that the next set of investors could, uh, you know, get the ICO price, so then the retail investors could get whatever it was later. And so obviously you see the end of the chain in this case is uh, is the retail investors, and that's what happened just over and over and over again. So you the, the point here, though, is that the 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 tokenization, at least as it was designed with no lockups, no holding mechanism, no nothing like that, just created huge incentive misalignment. Um, fourth, you have uh, issues, or, or fifth, I don't even remember what I'm on now, issues of liquidity, right? So they seem to be hyper liquid. They were when things were going well. When things are going poorly, tokens are incredibly illiquid, right? Like the, if, if there's no demand for people to buy tokens, uh, then they are just effectively useless pieces of digital data and strings of uh, of private keys that sit aimlessly forever in your brain on an exchange uh, and and that's where a lot of the the market is now and why so many people have left is that they just have these useless uh, irrelevant things that also makes it really hard of course when there's not enough liquidity for projects that are trying to be sincere and are really trying to explore some of these different types of use cases to make anything work um, and finally over application so behind me this whole time has been this uh, tweet from uh, from Rocco at Upstropolis on Twitter this is what the eighth circle of hell looks like um, it's from token fest in uh, uh, 2018, and there's neon lights flashing and a sign that says tokenize everything. Um, because we had, uh, on the one hand, uh, the tokenization of money, right, and the alternatives to money that Bitcoin and things represented. And then on the other hand, technology crypto, tech crypto, and the, the attempt to disrupt all of these networks around us, it got very muddled very fast, as to say nothing of securities tokens and all these things. And it was just like tokenize everything, tokenize the world. I mean, that was the mantra for a while. And it was so uh, overstated, it ceased to mean anything. Um, so what has happened, and, and more specifically, what's the latest? Why are we talking about this today? Well, the, 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 the reason that I wanted to focus on this is that I saw um, three different pieces of news that somehow related to tokens. And I think it's interesting to actually um, try to see what that might mean for, for the state of where tokens are. So first is that Shapeshift, uh, the exchange is, is offering a new token or is launching a new token. And now it's in the context of bringing 0% commission trading to crypto. At least that's what Eric uh, Voorhees from uh, Shapeshift is, is saying in, in his Twitter thread, right? So he says, all Shapeshift customers can now trade for free on the new Shapeshift.com platform while retaining full control of their keys. 
Why are we doing this? Too many people still leave their funds at custodial exchanges because non-custodial solutions, DEXs, and swap services have been either illiquid or high-priced. With 0% commission trading, Shapeshift now solves both of those problems. How does it work? Today, we release the much-anticipated Fox token, Shapeshift's loyalty asset. The model is simple. Hold Fox and you trade at 0% commission rate. If not, you trade at our retail rate. You don't spend or lose the Fox token to get the benefit, just HODL. Uh, we think, and this is actually the tweet that really inspired this in some ways, we think tokens are tremendously powerful tools for user engagement, and we're determined to demonstrate how they can be implemented responsibly. So as of today, exclusively at Shapeshift, you pay 0% commissions and get 100% control of your keys. Um, so there's a lot going on here. One, I think, uh, you know, Eric is a is a, an interesting and thoughtful voice, and I don't think would have gone into this unless they were. You know, I basically take at face value this uh, idea or this sense that they're being they're determined to de demonstrate how they can be how tokens can be implemented responsibly. Um, second, I think that one of the things that's been clear of the course of the last year is that uh, effectively outside of money tokens, right, things competing to be some form of uh, digital money or digital store of value, um, you know, the whole idea of utility tokens. Has hasn't really played out except in the context of these exchange tokens, right? So obviously BNB was kind of the, the granddaddy of these. Uh, it performed well during the 2018 bear market. Uh, BNB awards uh, holders get benefits in terms of uh, the trading fees that they pay. Uh, they also get BNB value returned to them in the form of a quarterly burn where 20% of Binance's profits are burned in, in, in BNB, which hopefully creates positive price, price pressure. Um, it was recently uh, came out that Binance had crossed a billion dollars in cumulative profit because they burned 200 million in BNB, so they've actually stuck with that promise. Um, so obviously, a lot of different exchanges have uh, launched their own model for this as well. There's the Leo and all this sort of stuff. Um, I think what's interesting and notable about Shapeshift is that they're trying to do it to incentivize use of the the DEX, um, and it seems like a, maybe a little bit less uh, complicated or complex in terms of how it's implemented. But I think that um, it, it's interesting because this is a reminder that so far this is one area where you know the the actual the benefits of the experience in a lot of cases seem to outweigh the friction of the experience and people actually use it and maybe that makes sense because it's in the context of the buying holding trading speculating behavior that is still right now the most core and native crypto use case um, so that that I think is interesting uh, a second piece of token news that I saw um, that I've noticed is so you know I got know that I do every Monday a, uh, a video version of Long Read Sunday with Block TV. And um, they just announced a couple weeks ago that, uh, that they are launching a token. And so a lot of folks in the space were pretty skeptical of this. Um, there's a lot of reasons why. I think uh, some of them have to do with the leadership of Block uh, TV and uh, other projects that they've been involved in. Some of it has to do with just the question of uh, why do a token, right? In in some ways, this feels like um, uh, it harkens back to those late eyes, late 2017, early 2018 days when people were like, oh, we'll slap a token on it and it transforms the business model. But you also have folks who are a little bit more open, right? So Crypto Man Ran here says, last week when I heard that Block TV News was issuing a token, I shared the same sentiment as uh, Mike Dudas from the block, obviously. Why does a crypto media channel need a token? After watching this, it seems there's a much bigger vision at play. So this is uh, the, the CEO of Block TV. So I'm going to uh, mute myself for just a minute and turn this on and, and let you listen to it in his own words. So why does a media organization need a token? The answer is simple. 
Blog TV wants to publish the best and newest information. And in order to do that, we are willing to reward those who provide us with it. I've been a journalist for 15 years, and I can tell you that the only reasons people provide information is in order to promote something they're doing or badmouth someone else. We want to give them a better incentive, and the BLTV token gives us the tool to do it. When a news source sends information into our BLTV newsroom, our professional editorial team receives it, verifies it, and if it meets our standards, packages it for publication. After we publish the story, we track its performance and through a smart contract on the blockchain, track its impressions on our various media and social channels. We can then determine a reward based on the story's reach, engagement, and the contributor's reputation score. But here is the really big vision. Block TV is just a proof of concept for this model. Eventually, this will expand and be replicated not only for others in the crypto media sphere, but for all news organizations. Just think about it. Sports, gossip, politics, and many other coverage topics. So a news publication that rewards those who make the news? We think it's only fair. What do you think? BLTV token will be listed on Bittrex Global November 21st, 2019. So, uh, okay. So there's there's a lot here. I mean, one is what we think about the idea of a newsroom that rewards uh, contributors in this way. Um, there's a lot to get into there, I, I think. Uh, yeah, it's almost beyond the scope of, of this one. I think we could do a whole uh, video here. Um, so I think that on the on in some ways the 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 what's for sure is that the media model today doesn't work the way that it used to. Um, and there's weird misalignment of incentives pretty much everywhere you look, right? If it's advertisers, then you know the question is who is advertising with you and how beholden them you are. If you have a different type of business model, uh, you know, that involves sponsorship, it's how do you figure, you know, how, again, who who are you beholden to? Um, you know, there's a reason that I think that a lot of people are turning back to just paid subscriptions because then at least your constituents are uh, or your your the people that you're responsible to the people who are paying you are your actual consumers of the news, um, but again that also creates weird incentives in in today's world at least to uh, be hyper reactionary right and to be just kind of red meat for whichever particular community uh, is willing to pay you. So I think that there's a a, a a challenge to go around, let's say, in the media model. And it doesn't surprise me, actually, that someone's experimenting with this idea of effectively user-owned media in some ways. But um, I also think that there's uh, there's still going to be challenges. So, you know, I, I'm not kind of sure about where this all lands, um, other than I think that it's a uh, it's an experiment that I, I, like I said, I'm surprised that no one else has done yet. Um, but so, like I said, where, where I land in it is uh, as some amount of skepticism. And I think that there's a lot of skepticism in the community, uh, but it's hard to deny that the media model is uh, in a challenging spot right now. Um, but again, what we're looking at kind of is the the uh, the larger trend of uh, just the, the fact that we're all talking about tokenization today for some reason. Um, and then the last and, and third and last piece that I wanted to uh pull up is um, is piece about Satoshi's treasure uh, basically uh, working uh, with 
startups to um, to offer an alternative to airdrops, right? So uh, this is by Lee Kuen, uh, and she writes, uh, Eric Meltzer of Primitive Ventures, which who kind of initiated Toshi's Treasure, Satoshi's Treasure. Meltzer says the Tezos Foundation has become the clandestine startup's first client with a side game for players to earn Tezzy starting in December. Uh, so far, Meltzer said roughly 20% of main game keys have been released. All the keys should be released by mid-2020. So uh, the the point in, of Satoshi's Treasure is basically it's a global game. It's a global hunt for keys to a $1 million Bitcoin prize. There's a bunch of different ways it incentivizes collaboration for people uh, to go find clues where they can uh, actually get closer to winning these awards. And um, the, the, <clears throat> the interesting thing here is that basically uh, they're trying to replace this idea of airdrop which is just dropping free money uh, onto people and hoping that they it somehow matters with a, a, basically an alternative to proof of work, um, uh, which is you know proof of literal actual creative work, not just mining work. And so will this actually uh, be a model that lots of token communities use to incentivize things? Does it actually get people more excited about the underlying asset or is it just an interesting and fun game dynamic? Does that even matter? I'm not really sure, but I do think that it's interesting that you're, uh, you're seeing these things slowly, slowly, slowly answer some of the challenges of uh, the problems of tokenization that we saw. So let's wrap up. What's the, what is the actual takeaway of this? Um, I think that the short answer is that the, the experiments in tokenization are not yet done. Um, I think that what you're seeing and what you're likely to see over the course of the next year is more and more things that react to and try to solve some problem of, uh, of tokenization that we saw in 2017, in 2018, uh, and, and fix it in a way that makes more people be open to the idea of uh, of tokens, right? And so that could be the distribution of tokens, as we see with Satoshi's treasure. It could be the purpose of tokens, as we see with uh, with Shapeshift's Fox token. Um, but either way, I think that there's, uh, you know, no matter how much uh, some some part of our community would like it to be so, I don't think that we're, we've seen the end of tokenization. Um, in fact, I think in some ways that the uh, the real question is just 10 years down the line, you know, which, if any use cases besides uh, besides money, will have they, they will they actually have manifested and become a thing for? So uh, anyways, like I said, not necessarily a huge conclusion, but something that's really interesting to note, and that's kind of the point of Narrative Watch, is just uh, when you see things start to emerge at the same time, I think it's worth taking note of. Um, what do you guys think? Is uh, is tokenization the, the same shit that it's always been, or is it something more interesting? Is there a, a version of it that actually gets you excited. Um, let me know in the comments and uh, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going. But for now, guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for hanging out and I will see you tomorrow. Peace.